Okay, everybody, welcome back to the channel. I'm really excited today. We have an awesome interview lined up. This is Gary Lockman, who uh, I'll read you a little bit of his bio. Gary Lockman is the author of 21 books on topics ranging from the evolution of consciousness to literary suicides, popular culture, and the history of the occult. He writes for several journals in the UK, US, and Europe, and lectures in all three regularly. His work has been translated into a dozen languages. He's appeared in several film and television documentaries on the BBC Radio 3 and 4, and is on the adjunct faculty in transformative studies at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Before becoming a full-time writer, Lockman studied philosophy, managed a New Age bookshop, taught English literature, and was a science writer for UCLA. Also, he was a founding member of the pop group Blondie, and in 2006 was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So, Gary, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, and you're a real renaissance man. I mean, you've, you've <laughs> had your, your hands in a lot of things. I just want to say that, that a while ago, I came across an article about you in the New York Times. It was called Spiritual Seekers Quest from Blondie to Swedenborg. And it was about your biography uh, that you had written. And I thought at that time, that's awesome that he did that. <laughs> and uh, I, I never assumed I would have the honor uh, of getting to talk to you. So thanks so much. Oh, well, well, again, all I can say is thank you for having me on. And yeah, uh, that was quite a thing having that. It's funny because um, I did a uh, TV interview like this um, a bit around the a little bit earlier than the New York Times thing, something called Conscious TV. And the line there was um, from Blondie to Jung. And because that, the, my Jung biography just came out around then. So at some yes. point, it from Blondie to whoever the next one <laughs> is. You know, I get, yeah. Charged, charged by, you know, sort of movement away. But yes, 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 by all means. Right. So, so they had the same headline editor uh, working, working yeah, on both well, of those. I mean, yeah. Can you blame them? I mean, there's yeah, exactly. So I do want to begin there, if that's cool. So I just want to hear a little bit about how you got from your, your start in, in music making to, to hear where you are writing and researching all these different spiritual and esoteric topics. So, so what's the, the short version? Well, the short version is, is that they more or less started around the same time. Uh, I started reading about the kinds of things I've been writing about. Um, around the same time I started playing in Blondie, which was the spring of uh, 1975. And uh, after living with um, Christine and Debbie Harry in their, their little flat in uh, Little Italy for a couple months, we then managed to get a bigger space in this uh, loft. Uh, it was kind of, sort of an illegal loft space or a very run down one on the Bowery in New York. And this is when the Bowery used to be the Bowery, not as it is today, uh, which is all done up and gentrified and, you know, it's turned into a very trendy neighborhood. Back then it was real skid row. Mm. Um, any case, in this place, uh, it was like three, three stories, three floors, um, the guy who was basically renting out the rooms was this wild artist and he was into the occult and into the tarot and into Aleister Crowley and he used to do these, these very colorful flamboyant paintings of these sort of tarot figures and then he would do these impromptu tarot readings with the, the Crowley cards. And I, I had never been, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly interested in the occult or magic or all that. I mean, the only kind of connection was through sort of horror films or weird fiction like Lovecraft or something like that. Right. But then, um, still around that time, there were a, a lot of kind of cultural debris from the previous generation from the 60s. And there were a lot of books about this sort of stuff. And uh, I'd already read some, some kinds of things, but, uh, but uh, I started getting interested in this sort of thing because of this, this, uh, this artist guy. And one of the books I read at the time, uh, or this changed my life, it was simply called The Occult. And it was by the British writer, Colin Wilson. Uh, my last biography was of, was, was of him. It came out uh, uh, last year. And um, um, 
he wrote about it in context of philosophy and literature and history and psychology and was a broad kind of intellectual, you know, study, but, you know, but also very well written. And it wasn't just like a book of spells or it wasn't just kind of like ghost stories. It was something that you yeah. know, was serious. And um, I also got, in, you know, interested in Crowley at the time and all that. So gradually, as I was playing with Blondie, I just became <clears throat> more and more interested in reading this kind of thing. And it, it, it produced uh, some music. I mean, one uh, song I wrote. Um, called I'm Always Touched by Your Presence, Dear, was about sort of this kind of psychic connection between my girlfriend and I at the time. Um, and then, uh, but just gradually what happened was that over time, um, um, after having my own band for a bit, um, the name of my band was The No, and that was sort of, that came from my interest in Gnosticism, uh, which I was reading about at the time through Jung. Um, but then, you know, fate, fate had it that um, I wasn't going to have a, you know, uh, successful solo career, and then I worked with Iggy Pop for a year as a guitarist. Um, Just throw that in there, yeah. Yeah, well, that was like yeah, and that was that, that was sort of the wild bunch. That was kind of like the last the last uh, kind of roundup uh, rock tour for me, and that was 1981. And then I just, just stopped playing. But um, at that point, I just sort of completely plunged into um, reading this kind of thing and studying it and um, pursuing various different kinds of things. And then just over time. Uh, it wasn't until about maybe 10 years later that I started writing about it because um, I was working at the sort of the mid, uh, sort of the late 80s into the early uh, 90s at um, this bookshop in Los Angeles um, called the uh, Bodhi Tree Bookshop, which was sort of the preeminent metaphysical bookshop west of the Rockies. It had, it had uh, risen to uh, fame in the uh, late 80s through Shirley MacLaine the actress when she was writing about and talking about and doing some TV movies about her interest in spirituality and all that. So in any case, I was working in the shop and at the same time I was getting into reading philosophy. Um, and so I was in these two worlds, uh, which in many ways I think now, see, you know, comes out in, in the, the approach I've discovered, I've taken to the kinds of things I've been writing about. Uh, so yeah, so that, that, that wasn't necessarily the short answer. That was more or less the long one, but that kind of brings us up to where we are now. No, that, that was just the right length. And it's cool. To, so it wasn't, uh, a right turn out of nowhere to, to go into where you are now, but it was more an evolution of something you'd, you'd been interested in and it was influencing your art the whole time. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. And it's also, you know, I've, I've written about that, that influence. I've written about the influence of the occult or whatever you call it, magic or uh, <clears throat> so on, on pop music, specifically in the 60s. I mean, my first book was about the 1960s and how the counterculture then um, in a variety of ways, and also the mainstream culture in a variety of ways, had taken this turn into the occult. You know, there was this, there was what they called the occult boom in the 1960s. And, you know, by mid-decade, you have the most famous people in the world, the Beatles, you know, are, are into this kind of thing, and all of their followers are doing it. So, and that, that's more or less lingered on now with us and become kind of more gentrified or, or part of society in, in terms of, say, the New Age and a variety of other kind of, you know, uh, yes. All the kind of subgenre, subcultures dedicated to it. But at that time, it, it was it was it was actually quite threatening, and it was sort of uh, at one point, you know. Um, in fact, I'm, next week I'm going to Spain to give a talk about um, a Spanish edition of, of my book Politics and the Occult, and I was going to say in the '60s this kind of occult revolution and this political one, along with the psychedelic and sexual, they all came together into this very, very, for a brief time, very kind of explosive kind of kind of Kind of brew. Um, yeah, and so you see, a, you see a strong influence of the occult in these things. That so this has kind of been a the the a player in there that we that not everyone would know was there, but has been shaping things. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I mean, it's 
well, it, the thing is, it's easy for this to start sounding like some conspiracy theory sort of thing, which is what I'm, I'm, I'm really you know, right. doing or wanting to do. The thing is, if you, if you sort of look for it, as it were, you, you don't need to invent lots of kind of conspiracy theories to account for, say, occult ideas or what we would consider occult ideas or esoteric ideas being coming into the mainstream. They're, they were there. It's just sort of, in many ways, they've been airbrushed out of uh, the different histories that have been written over the last you know, few centuries. Uh, but now, you know, uh, historians, you know, uh, there's academic historians who've gone in and, and, you know, written quite a bit and shown how, uh, like someone like Francis Yates, um, who's a British historian who uh, wrote about the uh, <clears throat> influence um, on the Hermeticence of, of uh, Hermeticism. And Hermeticism is this whole body of occult or magical thinking, including alchemy and astrology and a variety of other things that are attributed to this mythical sort of sage, Hermes Trismegistos, very sweet as Hermes. Um, and these ideas were rediscovered in the Renaissance around the same time as the, the, the Plato was rediscovered. But they were considered more important than Plato then at the time. They, they, it was believed that Plato learned from Hermes Trismegistos. Now, su subsequently, we've come to know that Hermes didn't exist and sort of uh, right. it, it, it came on. But this was, but this was sort of the, 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 uh, the prestige the importance that these ideas um, had for that time. And they did influence things like Botticelli's Venus, or they influenced Michelangelo, and, and so on and so on. So, uh, and there's a variety of other ways where, and that, that's what fascinated me was when I started, you know, because, um, <clears throat> you know, when I first was reading this stuff, I just was an enthusiastic, you know, fan, just reading about the occult, and it was fun, and Crowley, and wanting to do all the stuff he did, and take the drugs he did, and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Just the fun kind of stuff, but gradually, I, I guess I just developed, um, kind of intellectual interest in it because I just became interested in the in the history of it. Um, um, uh, what do we say? There's there's like a top layer of kind of sensational fun books and then there's another layer that's you know uh, you, 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 you reach this other layer where there's a bit more serious kind of approach to these things uh, yeah. you know, after you pass through that kind of thing and when I got there I just found all this very interesting stuff leading to politics and um, you know, literature. Uh, I mean that's how I wound up doing a book about Swedenborg because um, I, I did a book about uh, sort of the occult in literature, at least since like the last few, like maybe from the Enlightenment on. Uh, it was called A Dark Muse. Hmm. And um, it was about different writers being influenced by occult and mystical sort of ideas. And one of the names that popped up in a variety of different people's, you know, um, reading list uh, was, was Swedenborg. Yeah, I was going to say that Baudelaire and August Strindberg and so on and so on. Um, right. Go ahead. Yep. No, I was just going to say that you mentioned, you know, fun and exciting books and, and part of that study, I would say a lot of people would place Swedenborg in the other category. That he's oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, well, he's, he's certainly not a page turner, but this, this, yes. but he's somebody who turns up in, like, in, in the occult, that, the Colin Wilson book, he has a section on yeah. Swedenborg. And, you know, it's, it's, I mean, for a, for uh, a serious Swedenborg scholar, it's probably, oh, it's too popularized or whatever, but still it makes it interesting. And it tells the usual stories, you know, about him, his, his you know, sort of pre precognitive experiences or yeah. his experience and also his trips to heaven and hell and so on. Um, and, and of course, yeah, I mean, he, as I said, he's not, he's not someone um, I would say most people would find, <sighs> A treat to read, put it that way. <laughs> He's been accused uh, of being boring. <laughs> it's dry, it's dry, but I mean that's why you know 
as I say, people like me, uh, myself, um, you know, we, 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 we do that work for you. We, we read a good deal of it. We put in a nice little package and you can have an introduction to him. And then if you're interested, you can track it down. But, uh, um, but I'm just saying once, you know, I sort of got into reading more kind of serious or thoughtful or wide, wider ranging kind of histories, including cultural and, you know, variety of different sorts of people in philosophy, that's when it started to branch out. And, um, uh, but yes, yeah, so but that's how I said I wound up writing a book about Swedenborg was that um, I said his name kept popping up uh, and I did an article, for, it was a wonderful magazine in the 90s called Gnosis, mm-hmm. um, that sort of the, the journal of the Western esoteric tradition or something like that. And again, it was, it was a magazine, it had good articles, they weren't academic, but they were well written and well researched. And I did an article on Swedenborg for them. And um, I forget exactly how it happened that I came into contact with the Swedenborg Society here. This was a while ago now. But um, they had approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in doing a, you know, a, sh- a short book about Swedenborg. And so, yes, I, I was. And so, again, what I love about doing these kinds of books is that with someone like him, I hadn't read a lot of him already. I'd read about him. So it gives me a reason to sort of, you know, hunker down and read through a good deal of it and come to my conclusion about it. So this is, okay, okay, this is how I sort of can assimilate Swedenborg and like other people like Steiner and, and, and so on. Um, yeah. Well, it's a great, I think it's a great service that you're doing in, in all these cases of writing these books. Cause as I said, as you were saying, you have, you know, the interest and, and the resources to go in there, really dig into these deep things and then bring the rest of us, uh, you know, a summary, but a, a, a large enough summary that we can get a real sense of the person and maybe go pursue them mm-hmm. and further. So I want to know what, so you'd, you'd been exploring uh, the wor- uh, world of different writers and occult and everything surrounding it. What was it like delving into to Swedenborg in the world that he was describing uh, as you're getting ready to write this book? Um, well, I, I, uh, I, I, because I hadn't read a great deal about his own life and let's say, you know, aside from kind of the, the, the usual stories that are told and his scientific um, pursuits. I found that all, you know, very interesting. It was new. Um, and he was a remarkable character uh, at, of the time. I mean, you know, he was a traveler, he was a scientist, he was a writer, he was a poet for a while, at least he wrote some poetry. He was an inventor, uh, um, perhaps a spy, <laughs> or a secret agent of some kind. You know, he's one of these, in many ways, kind of a wonderful sort of enlightenment kind of figure. Um, who, because you say Renaissance, you said Renaissance men earlier, you know, and I, I humbly um, <laughs> reject that, but someone like Swedenborg, <laughs> yes, you could say that because he had, you know, he had his finger in as many pies as, you know, he could at the time. And, um, um, and the, it just struck me that more, you know, more people should know about him. Um, I mean, I called him sort of the Scandinavian Da Vinci. I was, I've, I've since been corrected. It should be the Scandinavian Leonardo, but you know, mm. um, no one knows the book, the, the Leonardo Code. So I just, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, but still, there's someone who, you know, did these fantastic number of things, very, very practical, you know, the, you know, the sort of assessor of, of mines and then working on the salt mines and, you know, the canal and all this remarkable kind of stuff. And on top of that, then spending, you know, the last whatever few decades of his life devoted to these inner pursuits. Um, and 
the book that really got me on Swedenborg was a book um, by um, Wilson Van Dusen. Um, his his book on I, I first read his book, Natural Depth in Man. Yes. Um, about sort of inner experience, and I was drawn to that because I myself went through a period where I was uh, experiencing this kind of you know very strong sort of sleep sleep paralysis and all these kind of hypnagogic kinds of things and i was thinking what the hell is going on with this sort of stuff and then i just researched into it and his book natural depth and man was one of the ones that went into it in depth and then he wrote about how swedenborg had um was seen to or did actually did he, he managed somehow to discipline himself to be able to stay in these states for a long time and this is when he went on his journeys to heaven and to hell in the spirit world and planets and you know so on uh, and so through reading that, I was drawn to reading um, uh, his book, The Presence of Other Worlds, about, about Swedenborg. And um, yeah, I just found that, you know, a very, a, a very good introduction. And then, um, of course, you know, I, I, I was a reader of William Blake, and I knew that Swedenborg, uh, Swedenborg had influenced Blake and you know, a variety of other. And then you just found, other, I mean, one of the things in my book on Swedenborg that um, I, it, it, was, it was interesting for me to realize and I wrote about is that um, Bernard Shaw, his play Man and Superman, um, and the third act of that is called Don Juan in Hell. And it's often performed by itself. It's this kind of dream sequence where, you know, the, the main characters in the play find themselves back in, you know, the time of Don Juan and all that. And, um, but, but Shaw's vision of hell uh, or his vision of heaven, which we, we don't see heaven, we, 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 it takes place in hell, and he, he describes hell as a place where people have nothing to do but amuse themselves. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I think we all... It sounds like it. Like, but heaven is this place where, you know, it's, it's active, it's, it's a place of work, it's a place of effort, and all this kind of thing. And the way he describes it sounds very much like sort of the heaven, the way the, um, Swedenborg, Street, Swedenborg describes heaven, uh, no angel is idle, and all right. this kind of thing so uh you just i just started to notice these sort of swedenborgian motifs let's say or sort of traces and um and yeah I, I, and all of the writing that he did on the cosmology and the brain and anatomy and um you know so many things that he wrote about so before his more inner or mystical for sake of a better word uh, kind of work um and that in itself was remarkable I mean, um, you know, more than one uh, person has said he anticipated, you know, quite a few things, you know, about the brain and uh, also about sort of, um, you know, the nebula theory and, you know, a variety of other scientific sorts of things. So all that I just found, I just found fascinating, you know. So that was, um, yeah, that, that, that made it, you know, quite a treat in many ways to do the book to find out all about that. Yeah, and I, I was thinking about when you were describing sort of your relationship uh, between the music in the early part of your career and then the study of the occult and, and surrounding fields and how they really kind of complemented each other and, and one was there growing out of the other. Because I think initially when I first came across Swedenborg, I thought, oh, here's a guy that had this scientific phase in his life and then this spiritual phase and the right. two didn't really talk to each other. But it seems like the more people are, are reading both uh, his pre-spiritual pre works and his mm -hmm. post, that actually it's sort of more an evolution of what he was learning mm -hmm. about the world rather than this whole new thing. No, I think that I think that's true, and I think it's also um, he was also interested in a lot of occult, let's say, yes. ideas before he had his experiences, before he had his visitations, and all that. I mean, that's something. That's something I think that when I 
when I started doing the research, I was in a way surprised because, again, the impression I had from just sort of a cursory, you know, sort of um, awareness was that this was something like you just said that bang kind of happened to him out of the blue, but actually he had been pursuing a variety of different sorts of Kabbalistic and um, breathing techniques and uh, various different sort of meditations. And as I said, these kind of these, and his dream journal, you know, he was, he was, yeah interpreting his dreams, obviously, you know, long before Freud and Jung, and um, the, the, the symbolism, uh, it's, it's, again, this is one of the things that um, Wilson Van Dusen pointed out about how these hypnagogic states, the sort of hallucinations or the you know, sort of audio um, sort of, you know, hallucinations or strange sentences come in, they're, they're self-symbolic in some way. Hmm. They, they somehow are a kind of statement about your state at the time. And this is something how, this this is the way in which Swedenborg um, interpreted his his dreams and all that. So he was doing all this sort of stuff. And then, as I said, and then you said, and he's also, he was trying to find the seat of the soul. He was trying to carry on from Descartes. Descartes had, uh, you know, Descartes had split the world into, you know, the interior world and the exterior world. And some 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 way they meet, even though they're radically different kinds of things. You know, they're ontologically different sorts of realities and they shouldn't be able to meet you know but they do uh his descartes desire for certainty you know okay if you're going to be certain about that the world's going to be like this so you got another problem over here yeah, now. Right. any case how do we how do we solve that and that's the whole mind body problem that we've been stuck with for a long time but you know he believed that the, the pineal gland you know is the spot where there's like some 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 bit there where somehow the spiritual and the physical world come together. And obviously we also know, of course, that that's where the Hindus believe that Hinduism, the, the third eye is there and so on. And there's all this other stuff related to it. But Descartes gave up in the end, uh, but Swedenborg tried, he, he, he picked up the ball as it were, and he devoted a great deal of his, you know, um, attention and research and analytical powers uh, to trying to understand this. And in the end, this is what led him to Abandoned the science because he felt, as Descartes, that he, he couldn't he couldn't find the soul in, in sort of material kind of world. Yeah, sort of hit hit up against the the hard problem of consciousness. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 he he knew the answer to it. It's like, well, it isn't, uh, you know, it isn't how how does a neuron? And apparently, he was one of the first ones to sort of point out neurons too. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, how does a neuron become a thought? No, it's the other way around. You know, that's the answer. <laughs> right, right, right. Thoughts become neurons. Now, how do they? How does that happen? That that's uh, you know. Uh, but yeah, no, you're right. He was up against a hard problem back then. Uh, in fact, you know, I, 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 I who, who was it? Uh, Nicholas Humphrey did that book, Soul Searching. Hmm. One of the you know who was trying to lay lay the ghost of the soul, uh, you know, to rest and all that. But yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you can find you know there's a, a an evolution where he. he so in many ways, he, he exhausts, you know, um, he exhausts the possibilities of the, the, the kind of burgeoning new science, this new sort of, you know, whatever you want to call it, the, uh, the sort of devotion to measurement and, you know, physical reality. He sort of, ex at least for him, he exhausts its possibilities in this search for something. And he also recognizes things that just, okay, well, if we can't account for these things in terms of this kind of new physical science, and they just must be things that, you can't apply that to. It's not that they don't exist. You know, he recognizes that the kinds of you know purpose, meaning, whatever you want, you know, some sort of um, you know spiritual, for sake of a better word, uh, ingredient to things. 
you know, if, 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 you, if you developed a method that can give you this kind of certainty, but it excises all those things, then, well, there must be something wrong with the method because those things, those things inform your very pursuit of the yes. truth. So if you're going to undercut, you know, your, your sort of, the, the, the mode of force that you have to pursue truth by saying that that's just an illusion in some way, then, you know, that can't be right. You sort of, you're, you're, you're sawing, you're sawing the, the limb off. So, you know, you should stop, stop sawing at that point and think, rethink it in some way. So right. but that's not the way it went, obviously. And now with any luck, you know, maybe we're coming around to something more along those lines that uh, Swedenborg had, I guess, with people like Rupert Sheldrick and other sort of uh, David Chalmers and other, you know, people working in the scientific and philosophical world. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I, I want to, um, before, before we go here, I just want to talk a little bit about your current project or, right. or one of the ones you're working on. I know that uh, in 2018, in May, I think you got a book, Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump coming out. So that's, this is sort of a continuation of the beginning of our conversation, but I want to hear a little bit, what's that about and, and what have you been, been finding in that research? Um, well, that book came about uh, because of uh, someone noticed that, um, uh, <clears throat> there seemed to be this kind of strange sort of occult politics going uh, around around Trump, for sake of a better word. Um, um, there's a fellow named Harvey Bishop who uh, has a New Thought blog. Mm. You know, new, new Thought is you know mental science, power, positive thinking, and um, it's 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 you know it's it's been known that Trump is a you know devotee of positive thinking. He, uh, Norman Vincent Peale was you know. One, his mentor along with his father and um it's like one of the only books he read and he's a very positive character uh is, is the president and and so on but along with that um there was a strange thing that happened soon after trump's um election you know when he won the election uh something called the national policy institute which is a very innocuous name for an organization that um, you know, quite a few people believe is a sort of white nationalist White, white supremacist organization. Mm. And it's led by a fellow named Richard Spencer. Um, they had their, their meeting, their annual meeting in the Ronald Reagan building in, in Washington, DC. And Spencer began the meeting by, uh, I mean, you know, this is in the news and everything. Spencer began the meeting by, you know, sort of shouting, you know, hail Trump, hail our leader. You know, we made this happen. We dreamed this into reality. Oh and, yeah, I saw that uh, video. And then, you know, and then people in the audience were, you know, giving the, you know, the, the C. Kyle sort of, sign and all that uh and uh bishop note said like well this whole idea about you know making dreams reality dreaming something into reality this is what new thought is about this is what all mental science is kind of thing about so he was he was he, he was worried or concerned that um sort of far right group uh, spencer is also the fellow who coined you know the term the alternative right the alt-right okay he's you know, uh, and it, it gets a bit strange and complicated, but uh, what, what, what it turns out is that um, Spencer and the alt-right through sort of uh, the internet were, uh, and other people were engaging in something that's come to be known as meme magic. And mm. it's, it's a kind of, you know, memes are these, whatever, you know, these kind of symbols or images, whatever they are, you know, that people, play with it. They're, they're, they're sort of like Chinese whispers or kind of telephone yes. by, on the internet with images. They start out as one thing and then they get played with and all that. But what happened is that the, the sort of the alt-right, these, this, these far-right uh, sort of characters who were behind Trump because he was like the ultimate PC 
uh, uh, ultimate non-PC kind of guy. You know, he just sort of was, you know, giving all that, you know, the, the, the brush off and so on. They were behind him for that. And they, they, they co-opted this cartoon character. There's this, this figure called Peppy the Frog. Now this sounds absolutely mad. But it's true. Uh, it's this kind of, you know, Peppy the Frog. It's kind of, you know, it started out as this innocuous kind of, you know, kind of slacker amphibian. And then he uh, somehow, through these strange transmutations, became this mascot, uh, poster frog, as it were, uh, for, for the alt-right and for all this kind of thing. And so the buzz is that somehow through inundating, you know, the, the web and the net, and all these images of Peppy and Peppy as president and Peppy with the deplorables. And um, the people behind this are sort of, engaging in a kind of, uh, basically a kind of mental magic, a kind of, you know, new thought, positive thinking, but through, through the internet. And the whole idea with the post-truth world and, you know, the fake news world and the alternative fact world and the whole thing about, you know, reality and non-reality, reality and its representation of the sort of shifting, you know, what's the most popular thing these days is reality television, you know, so real world has been going into the TV, but it's reciprocal. So what's come out of the TV now? What's coming out of the screen now? Well, it's Trump, because Trump started out as a reality television figure. Now he's stepped out of the television, he's become... So one of the things I, I'm, I ask in the book is, 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 is Trump the kind of, well, there's a, there's a Tibetan word called tulpa, mm. thought form that's created by people's imaginations, but then it gets out of control. It kind of, you know, it's a kind of, uh, a golem of the mind that you know gets created and then you know loses control. Any case, I mean, this is also uh, the, the book is about all this, and, and it goes into Russia as well because there's all all this kind of strange stuff going on in Russia, and um, it also goes into about this fellow Julius Evola, who was um, uh, an Italian esotericist, but also you know uh, tried to curry favor with Mussolini and the fascists, and also Hitler and the National Socialists, and who. Uh, he died in 1974, but uh, a lot of his ideas have been influential in different sort of far-right groups, and they've been kind of rediscovered um, in sort of since the 90s into you know our, our time now. Like this new kind of right-leaning, esoteric uh, reading kind of crowd, and people in the alt-right sort of name-check him as someone who's giving them sort of their ideological. Uh, you know, um, substance. Uh, right. so, so I mean, it's 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 a it's a rather heady brew. Uh, so I I I only hope he you know from my own my own selfish you know my own selfish benefit. I just hope he stays president. At least he stays in the news until until he can comes analyze, out. continue to this analyze. From now things change very quickly these days. So you're, yeah. Well, so I'm thinking. I, I once saw um, uh, a series on the History Channel about Nazi Germany and oh. this. Um, there was this whole, I guess you would call it a cult side of it, where they were looking for this thing called Vril, and they would hold yeah. these ceremonies. Yeah. So I wonder, there's sort of the secular world that we all agree exists, but then there are, like you were mentioning, New yeah. Thought and these sort of uh, worldviews that, that acknowledge something outside of it. Do you think it's, it's pretty regular for groups that come into power to have some kind of uh, belief in in an unseen part of the world that's helping them gain their power? Well. Well, you know, the, yeah, as I said, you know, the thing is, I think you, you can find perhaps more often than you might think that people, but people that are in power have, have deep interest in this. I mean, one of the ones going to American history is Ronald Reagan. You know, he was very much interested in positive thinking. He was very much interested in um, uh, astrology. 
Uh, he was very influenced by an American um, sort of writer or sort of kind of an encyclopedist about the esoteric, a named Manly P. Hall, who was around, uh, started out in the, sort of the 20s and he carried on. He died he was in his 90s, he, he uh, just about, so he carried on for a while. But um, he wrote a book about the secret destiny hmm. of America. And so America had this kind of, kind of mystic destiny, sort of a Monroe doctrine, but for the rest of the world, not you know, not for just going, you know, out, out across the West. And this was all guided by these kind of Masonic or Rosicrucian. Rosicrucians were um, a, a strange, unknown society in the early 17th century who combined um, kind of knowledge of the rising natural sciences with this hermetic kind of wisdom, uh, and also with sort of social progressive ideas and so on and so on. So, I mean, and, um, I mean, you, again, it's not like there's a, cons I'm not saying there's a conspiracy and everyone is interested in the occult and we have to unveil it. It's sort of like, actually, if, if, if you take your prejudices away and uh, kind of can turn off the woo-woo alarm, you know, because when you talk about the occult, it's woo-woo, oh my God. Yes, that's right. Stuff. It's sort of like, you can't really, you used to, it's like we can't, we used to, sex was like that. You could, you used to be able to not talk about sex without kind of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. But now, you know, you can sort of talk about it without that. More yep. or less, because now with the occult, you can't. It's sort of still the X Files music comes on or something. <laughs> Whereas you want, I mean, nothing wrong with that because that it, it is like that. But still, at the same time, um, to to try and say, well, actually, look, guys, no, I, I don't mean conspiracy theories because I mean you said the real society. Well, that's just kind of that that didn't really happen. Uh, but there were people um, uh, like uh, Himmler and you know the different people had interests. Uh, uh, Rudolf Hess was one of the people close to who had real sort of occult interest and all that. Um, but it, you know, it, it wasn't like sort of the, the kind of, you know, they used dark forces kind of story where you know, Hitler is raising spirits to, you know, attack and all that. But still, I mean, it's, it, it's still, it's there. I mean, it's in sort of French history too. Um, one of the things I uh, touch on in that, in, this, in Dark Star a bit, and also wrote about in um, an earlier book I mentioned um, this, this evening, uh, politics and the occult was, uh, it was a strange sort of esoteric political movement in France in the late 19th, uh, uh, supposed to have carried on into perhaps even today, called synarchy or the French synarchie, which is sort of, if, if, if anarchy is no government, synarchy is total government. Hmm. And it, it's, it's, it's it, in a certain way, it's kind of based on uh, the vision of society as, 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 as kind of an organic whole um, where you know, and, and, and it's hierarchically kind of structured. Uh, I mean, and a similar idea goes back to Plato. You know, he sees the state as, you know, sort of divided into sort of the emotions, the intellect and the body and, and, and so on and so on. So, but it's this idea of a kind of total government with everything, the, whole, the state, you know, is part, everything, everything of our lives is part of the state and has to do with the state and the state is perfectly sort of organized and everyone is in their place and all that thing and it's all supposed to be wonderful and hunky-dory but just like in, in the body if one cell kind of acts up you know you, you can't allow that because the rest of the body will get sick so you have to be so that this is perfect harmony is paid for by you know a kind of beneficent sort of totalitarianism You're right uh, so but this idea um seeped through into sort of french politics uh Certainly in between the two wars, there's, there's supposed to have been like a shady kind of underground movement. And then even sort of during the Vichy 
period and all that. And so, so the thing is, you can find these strange things. And, and you know, often enough, it is sort of the far right that's interested in these kinds of things. Now, one of the things I talk about in politics and the occult is that, yes, that's true. There, there's a lot of interest, or you can find a lot of, you know, occultists that have far right politics or vice versa. But there has also been this progressive, for the sake of a better word, kind of occult politics. Um, going back to the Rosicrucians and into aspects of sort of Freemasonry and then uh, people like Madame Blavatsky in the Theosophical Society. I mean, there was a woman in, in the late 19th century, uh, Victoria Woodhull, who ran, she was the first woman to run for president, but um, she combined kind of mediumship with Marx. I mean, she was kind of a, a medium and a faith healer and a mesmerist, but she was also, she published the first English translation of the Communist Manifesto, and uh, she was one of the first women to open up a kind of brokerage firm on Wall Street. And, I mean, obviously she didn't win the election, but yeah. um, you don't hear much about her, but she ran on this kind of ticket based on all these strange kind of progressive ideas that, again, they also were recycled in the 1960s. I mean, all these things that people thought they were just happening then, you know, consciousness and the, the occult and Eastern mysticism and free love and, um, you know, uh, getting back to nature and, and kind of holistic medicine. All these things had come up already in the turn of the century. They were very popular in sort of the 1870s on until like sort of pre-war. Um, so the stuff is there, you know, it's mm. there. It, it, and in fact, I, I you know, I, I can see it kind of goes in cycles. Um, I mean, um, I, I did a big book about all this called The Secret Teachers of the Western World. That's kind of a whole overview of sort of Western intellectual history or, or history of consciousness, let's say, um, from, well, I guess pretty much day one until, you know, contemporary times. Um, so, um, which is nothing but, nothing if not ambitious, but, uh, yeah. it's, it, you know, again, it's something where you can see these ideas are there, they turn up. I mean, they're, they're in, you know, people like Goethe, people like Dante, mm -hmm. uh, others, you know, uh, Beethoven, I mean, they're, um, I'm not saying they're completely, that's the only influence on them, but it's certain things. Unlike us today, who, again, it's something that, will, you know, oh, you're into, into that, oh, you're into this weird occult stuff. Or <laughs> they were reading all this stuff. They were, they were into, it, was, it was part of the general cultural stuff. It wasn't something that, it's only with sort of the dominance of the kind of, um, you know, rationalism that, that starts to become really dominant, say, in the 19th century. It's a kind of, you know, more or less victory of sort of hard materialist science over any kind of spiritual outlook. Yeah. Um, that, that is completely jettisoned, but you know, I mean, these people weren't stupid. Goethe was certainly not stupid. You know, Dante certainly wasn't stupid. Yeah. Right. Just back then you could, uh, you could be interested in read and research without risking your whole, your whole career. Yeah, your, your career. I mean, and, and even as, even as recent as the early 20th century, people like William James, Philosopher William James, Henri Bergson, great French philosopher, um, Nobel Prize winner. They, they were both uh, involved in the Society for Cycle Research. They were both very open about their interest in, in um, studying, you know, altered states of consciousness and mysticism. Um, James um, inhaled nitrous oxide in order to have a mystical experience, so he could sort of, you know, kind of check it out for himself. He didn't do it regularly, he did it once, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then he, tried, he, tried, he tried peyote and he said he didn't, he didn't like it, you know. He, he, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, they, but, you know, he self-experimented to see, rather than you have people like Richard Dawkins and, and their ilk, who, who, oh, they just refuse to even look at anything. Right. Old evidence, because they're convinced already. And that, that, to me, you know, that's the new, you know, 
whatever new dogmatism. That's the kind of you know clerisy there. Right. You know, they're they're the ones who are refusing to look through the telescope now. You know. Yes. So there's a sort of healthy medium, not believing everything that everyone claims, but not being unwilling to have the conversation. That's what it's all about. You know. I mean, it sounds simple, but it's not. It's not that easy to do. You know, you have to kind of, and you know, it's 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 a kind of. I mean, you know, I mean, I guess in the long run, I, I, I would say, well, I'm willing to accept that we live in a world in which such, such things may be possible. That doesn't mean that they are possible, but far be it for me to decide what's possible in this world. That's right. If it depended on me, I'd be, I'd be very sorry that was the case. But, I, I, you know, I'll do my best to look at everything. And I, fundamentally, you have to base everything on your own experience. And Yeah. I've, you know, I, I don't trumpet it, but in a few of my books, I mentioned like, well, actually I've had, you know, I've had certain precognitive dreams. I've had certain synchronistic experiences that have just, I can't account for them in any normal sort of way. Um, doesn't mean I believe in aliens, doesn't mean, you know, any, but just means they're like, well, if I can't account for those things that I know happened to me and actually at the same time had, they weren't just sort of, Casual. They, 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 were, they weren't sort of arbitrary. They had, you know, they, they had something that you know was convincing import to them. That I just felt like, okay, well, if that's possible, then I'm willing to accept some of these things, whatever. Just give them the benefit of the doubt, you know. Yes, right. And, and do my best to try to understand them, you know. And that's what I do. I mean, I don't accept everything Swedenborg says, just like I don't accept everything Rudolf Steiner says or uh, Crowley or uh, you know Madame Blavatsky, you know. Um, uh, I mean, uh, but I, I try to make sense of what they say. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm quite critical. I'm quite critical. I mean, people, I mean, the thing is the people that are real devotees and fans, I mean, I mean, I'm a fan of them, but I'm, you know, critical. Of them. Sure. Uh, but, you know, the people that sort of, you know, kind of real uh, uh, passionate devotees, you know, they, they criticize me for the books because I'm <laughs> criticizing them. So it's not yes. as if, you know, I get, I get, you know, wonderful plaudits from everybody around, you know, I mean, I, I don't, but it, it's right. just a, this is how it is. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have to be honest about this. And again, what I think is important that the Steinarians and the Swedenborgians and the Jungians and the Gurdjieffians and everybody else all talk to each other rather than, rather than stay in, you know, or whoever it is these days, the shamans or whatever, Buddhists, they don't, rather than stay in their own world, talk to each other because fundamentally we're all talking about the same thing. Yeah. I mean, right. I, I, you know, I, and I think the more we can find a common, you know, Kind of working hypothesis about what what the different ways are are, are uh, talking about, then the closer we can get to having something solid that we could bring to you know the the, the dominant and say, okay, well here's something that's actually observable, and, and I don't necessarily mean phenomena, but I mean you know just sort of even I I just wrote an article about um, this work um, with Dutch um, cardiologist um, Pim van Lummel. Uh, did well, some time ago now, but uh, on um, you know near-death experiences, um, and uh, you know he, he he studied quite a lot of cases and came to the conclusion in the end basically there was enough uh, enough of them there was enough high enough percentage of cases in which you couldn't account for the near-death experience by you know the standard scientific scientifically accepted you know uh, uh, criteria. And uh, it just means there's something there. There's something there to study, not that it's, oh, we can explain it away as a hallucination or, you know, something that uh, happens because there's, you know, not enough oxygen in the brain. No, it's, it's something that's a real 
phenomenal in some way. Yeah. And let's start with that. Yeah, exactly. Let's at least be allowed to look at things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I so much appreciate you you being willing to have you know part of this conversation you're describing here with us. And uh, if any of you want to check out further these subjects Gary's been talking about, um, GaryLockman.co.uk is a great way to get in touch with his material. We'll have links in the description here. Gary, I just want to say thank you so much again for being my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. It was it was my pleasure indeed. All right. We'll we'll talk to y'all later. All right. Cheers. All right.